Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I'm talking with Kairudan Aljunaid, an Associate Professor at the National University of Singapore, about radicals, resistance and protest in colonial Malaya published in 2015 by Northern Illinois University Press. Kai Rudin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Who were these radicals and why did you write a book about them? Well, um, the origins of the book went as far back as in 2005 when I first stepped uh, into London. It was just after the 7-7 bombings in London and there was a a culture of uh, fear and suspicion. I came with a very odd topic on British Orientalism and the Malays. And very quickly I realized that I'm not going to do such thing. Uh, It's going to be boring to talk about... uh, date white men talking about Malays and I realized that um, I was in a scenario where Muslims are placed under critical scrutiny and one of those things that emerged from all of this Islamophobia that was going around uh, in London in those days was the whole issue of the involvement of radicals in the bombings that had just taken place. Um, I was thinking about writing something about radicals or radicalism, but realized that it was not an appropriate moment to do such a study. So what I did basically for the PhD was to write about the Maria Hertog riots, which had some of the radicals uh, as part of the, the unfolding of a riot that broke out in Singapore in 1950. But during the Viva, uh, one of my examiners, uh, who was uh, Professor Timothy Harper from Cambridge University, asked me, uh, what is the book that you want to write right after these exams that you have done or this oral examination that I, that I was doing with them? I was pretty shocked and I said to them that really, I think that the PhD is the book that I'm going to write. But they said, no, we want to hear something else that you are interested in really. So I said, I'm, I'm interested in the Malay radicals and how they fought uh, structures of authority uh, and various hegemonies that were taking place and that were playing in the societies that they were in uh, during that time. So I guess the origins of the book actually began in London uh, at a time where uh, Muslims in general were under siege by the many things that were happening in their own societies. So that is basically the gist of uh, how I came into this project. What was the distinctive radical quality of the people about whom you write in the book that earns them this description? How would you characterize their radicalism? In uh, Malaya, um, they have been cast as people who were involved in what has become known as communist movements in Malaya. And many of these radicals uh, are seen as people who are either terrorists or they were challenging certain uh, structures in society 
in ways that were against the traditions of the Malays. Basically, they were deventized by the Malaysian state currently and also the colonial state in the past. What I wanted to show was something else, that these people were radicals or were known as radicals, not really because they were communists, but really because they were questioning the very ideas that were propagated by the colonial state in those days and the feudal uh, ways of life that was sustained by the royalty during that time. So they were radical at a few, in, a few, in a few ways. The first is they were radical when it comes to the ideologies that were in place. They wanted to overcome and circumvent the various ideologies that were playing in the minds of the Malays in those days ideologies that were subjugating them, ideologies that were making them subservient not only to the British, but also to the ruling elites in society. That's the first level. The second level of radicalism is actually radicalism when it comes to gender relations in society. We know in those days, women were seen as subservient uh, to the men, and they were made to be domesticated and to be uh, more active in the private sphere than in the public sphere. Women were not allowed to take part in politics, for example, and these radicals were challenging those notions of womanhood and also gender relations in society. So that's the, the second level of uh, radicalism. And the third thing that they were questioning then were the religious or what we call as the ways in which Islam was interpreted in those days. So one strand of this radicalist movement were questioning some of the interpretations of Islam that they saw as very regressive and that was leading the Malay society towards backwardness. And they were questioning many of these various assumptions about Islam. They were pushing the Malay society towards a more reformist and modernist ways of thinking. And through all these things that they have done, they were seen as people who were rocking the boat in the Malayan society. It was just, they were radical in many, at many levels, in many ways. How did the political ideas and practices of the radicals differ from other nationalists, others concerned with the struggle for an independent or autonomous state? Well, uh, especially in the 1940s up until the 1960s, the Malay nationalist movement was divided into three main factions. The first faction is what we call as the traditional elite faction, which was led really by AMNO. They belonged to the elites in the Malay society who felt that the traditional structures in the Malay society ought to be preserved. They never believed in total independence from the British. What they believed in initially was really the predominance of the Malays in a multicultural society. They actually adopted the ideology of independence when they saw that the radicals were pushing for these ideas of independence uh, so very vehemently. The second group is basically what we call as the militant group in the nationalist movement in, in Malaya. And these were the people who made up um, the, the, what we call as the fifth regiment in the communist uh, party in Malaya. And they were fighting the British in the jungles, thinking that through armed revolution, they would bring about the making of a new Malaya. And thirdly, of course, the radicalist or the, the radical group uh, that, is, that, that consists of, consisted of so many different groups, the KMM, Kesatuan Melayu Muda, the PKMM, uh, and of course, today what we know as PAS, there were many different parties, social movements, and groups 
that form what we call today as the radicalist movement in Malaya. So there, there, are, there are variants of nationalist movements in those days. The radicals form one of such groups. You talk about a number of mobilizing concepts, ideas that move across the radical movement and animate its members. What were those mobilizing concepts and why do they matter for the story that you tell in this book? Right, so uh, what, what I tried to do in the book is to show that the radicals were not mere uh, activists in society. Uh, the radicals were also thinkers. They were trying to make sense of the various problems in their societies and in order to make sense of various problems in societies, in their society, they had to devise some ideas uh, that could somehow sustain their activities. And I call these ideas uh, mobilizing concepts, which are basically concepts that were playing in their minds, concepts that they use to justify whatever that they are doing. These are ideas, visions, and notions that were used by the radicals to reason and justify the advent. They were thinking tools for them to make sense of the structures of domination and inherent within their time and place. And of course, these concepts were also sources of motivation to in induce them to surmount various challenges and problems that stood in their way. So when I talk about mobilizing concepts, I refer to a few concepts. The first is, of course, warisan, which is also translated as heritage. The radicals basically referred to the heritage that they have inherited from past movements. So in order to justify their existence, they refer to various rebellious or rebellions that took place in the Malay world, and they used it as a source of motivation for them. The second concept is cita-cita perjuangan, which is translated as the spirit and ambitions of struggle, that to be a radical is to be in constant struggle against the structures that are working against you. And in order to maintain that sense of perjuangan or struggle, you need to have kesatuan, unity. And this is where the radicals believe that there is no way that they could achieve independence by fighting it out on their own. They have to forge alliances. And this, is, this explains why they were working together with the communist movements not that they actually buy in into the ideology of communism, but they felt that in order for them to create a mass movement in society, in order for them to fight the colonial powers that were already ascendant in those days, they need to build this sense of unity in the Malayans first. The other concept that I looked at is actually kesedaran, the consciousness, the consciousness of ideology. And this is where you can see the influence of the, the thinking of Karl Marx on the Malay radicals. Karl Marx uh, spoke about the whole, the role of false consciousness in society and they too used the word kesedaran, consciousness, uh, to tell the Malays that they ought to be aware of what's happening around them, of the fact that they are subjugated by the British and that they are actually masters in their own land. The last, mobilizing con uh, the last two mobilizing concepts that I looked at in the book is actually um, kebangsaan, nationalism, which is straightforward enough, the whole idea that Malays ought to come together and feel that they are not only part of the states that they are in, they belong to a pan-Malayan uh, pan identity. And of course, the other concept is called Melayu Raya, which is a union of Singapore, Malaya and Indonesia. I want to talk a little bit about this because this was uh, a sense of geographical imagination that the radicals had during those days. They felt 
that in order for the Malays to be powerful, they need to unite Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia together. They realize that this entity never was never constructed before or never realized. But they see strength in numbers, they see strength in unity, and they see strength in a geo body that was large enough to show to the Dutch and the British colonizers at that time that Malays could be united in the path to achieve the last mobilizing concept, which is Merdeka, or freedom or independence. The first substantive chapter of the book begins in the 19th century with the killing of a British official. Why start with that event? And what happened afterwards? Right. That was basically the rebellion of Maharaja Lela. And the story of that the killing of the British uh, governor or colonial official became something that uh, was remembered by the Malays then. It was remembered not only because it signifies uh, a resistance that was waged by an elite in that society, but it was also remembered because the, the man who actually killed the British officer was later on murdered and hung to death. And that very event reminded the Malays that if they did not stand up for themselves, they would be crushed by the powers that be that were playing against them. So I begin with that story partly because for the Malay radicals, this is a story that is that that has been remembered by the Malays around them, and this is a story that will that has become a source of motivation for them. So that is why I, I began that. Were there other uprisings or rebellions prior to the emergence of what we might describe as the modern anti-colonial movement of the 1930s? Yeah, there were many rebellions actually, starting from the Maharaja Lela rebellion in Perak. There were many rebellions in Selangor, in Pahang, in Kedah, in Trengganu, as well as far away in Sabah and Sarawak. And this has to do with the fact that the Malay elites especially were disgruntled by the fact that the British had taken away many of the privileges that they enjoyed during those days. Of course, there were other uh, changes in society. And in the book, uh, in Chapter 2 of the book, I actually examine how the political and social landscapes of uh, Malaya was reconfigurated as a result of direct colonization by the British. And that led to the Malays feeling that they are pushed aside, that they are now the margins of society when they were actually part and parcel of the mainstream society. And this generated what I call as a protest cycle in Malaya then. Maybe you can continue speaking to that point. What was the protest cycle? What form did it take in the 1930s with the appearance of former political parties that were opposed to the British colonizers? Right. So by the 1930s, many of the Malays had already uh, been sent to formal education. They were resistant towards British education at first. But by then, they realized that waging peasant rebellions and protest movements will not help in their endeavor to attain independence from the British. Many of these Malays who went to English and Malay schools realized that the only way to fight the British is to use their weapons against themselves. And the way to achieve this is actually to start a social movement or a social political movement. And that is why in the 1930s, this group of young men came together to found this organization called the KMM, the Kesatuan Melayu Muda. It is an organization that was partly inspired by the various clubs that they joined during those days. One of the founders of the group, Mustafa Hussein, was actually part of the left and right clubs uh, in England. 
uh, he joined the club really as a distant member, uh, subscribed to many of the publications that came out of the club. And through that, they actually realized that you can be anti-colonial in a more effective way when you formalize yourself as an organization that is seen from the surface as legitimate on the part of the colonial rulers, but underground, you're doing other things to get the support of the masses towards the achievement of independence from the British. So what sort of things were they doing? Can you say a bit more about the background of some of the key figures in the KMM? Right. So the earlier founders of the KMM were people like uh, Mustafa Hussein, Ibrahim Haji Yaakob, and Isa Haji uh, Muhammad. And all of these people basically belong to the mainstream uh, so-called uh, sector of society. They were not marginals. Uh, Isha Haji Muhammad, for, uh, for example, was actually a district judge uh, before he actually joined the KMM and became a journalist himself. Uh, Ibrahim Haji Yaakob was a school teacher. And of course, Mustafa Hussein was also a club. So was actually a colonial officer before he actually joined the radicalist movement. They were basically, as I wrote in the book, uh, they were in uh, people who benefited from the colonial policies. But because they benefited from the colonial policies, they also saw some of the contradictions of life under colonial rule. So in the earlier days, in nineteen in the nineteen thirties, when they found the KMM, this group of men and uh, men in that uh, organization were very suspicious of what would happen to them. They were anticipating problems really when they found the movement. So the KMM in the early years began with having political uh, causes and discussions. They were talking about creating a new Malaya. The problem with those days uh, is that because they were so utterly suspicious about what would happen to them, nothing actually came out uh, from the movement that they found. But one thing that they managed to do in those days was to spread the ideas of liberation amongst the Malays. And this is where Ishaq Haji Muhammad, as well as uh, Ibrahim Haji Yaakob, was very prominent because they were journalists, they were writers, and they were writing books telling the Malays to be awakened, to be aware of what is happening to them, and to be active in various clubs that were founded by the Malays then, uh, for them to train themselves to be ready to be taking care of Malaya then. Of course, one wing within the KMM in those days uh, was very active in trying to solicit the support of the Japanese. They were anticipating the invasion of the Japanese into Southeast Asia and very quietly and secretively, they actually made deals with the Japanese that they would function as guides for the Japanese army to occupy Malaya. So that was that for the 1930s. Not much activities, lots of propaganda on their part, and more uh, of uh, this clandestine um, assistance for the Japanese to invade Malaya. As you've brought us to the Japanese period, let's continue with the discussion there. In December 1941, they do invade, and the story is complicated because, as you've indicated, some of the participants in the movement sought to collaborate with the Japanese, but others had different ideas about political struggle in this time. Can you tell us about how the radicals worked in this period, whether they were engaged with or opposed to the Japanese occupiers, and how? Right. So the job, Japanese occupation was probably the most difficult uh, times for the Malay radicals because they are not sure then who they should support 
and who sh- they should go against. They knew that the British uh, was the target that they were going against. Once the Japanese had invaded Malaya, they were expecting that the Japanese would give uh, Malaya the, the freedom that they promised. The, the Japanese, of course, turned back uh, on their own words. And the, the radicalist movement were then divided into different splinters. One wing or one splinter from the entire group had it that they will not participate in the movement at all. So these were were radicals who felt that it was pointless to resist anyone and anybody now. And they actually retreated into the kampongs and did nothing uh, throughout the Japanese occupation. Another group consisting of Mustafa Hussein and his followers felt that resistance was possible, but resistance ought not take in the form of militant movements. So what he did basically uh, during those days was to partly collaborate with the Japanese in order to save the Malays from the wrath of the Japanese themselves. So what Mustafa Hussein basically did as a Malay radical during those days, the most radical thing that he did was basically to rescue uh, many Malay soldiers, policemen, and even the aristocrats from being punished by the Japanese. The other group, consisting of um, Ibrahim Haji Yaakob and, of course, the young radical Ahmad Bustamam, decided that they will co- cooperate with the Japanese as part of a paramilitary wing of the Japanese army. So they set up the Heiho, which was part of the Japanese paramilitary wing, in anticipation of the Allied invasion of Malaya again. And because of that, Many, many of these youths that participated in this uh, splinter of the, of the Malay radicals became militarized. And that sets the very foundation of the Malay-Chinese violence that we see right after the Japanese occupation. So it was a very difficult time. One group uh, that was not really directly affiliated with the Malay radicals prior to the war um, actually took on uh, writing, the writing of short stories. And this is people like uh, A. Samad Ismail, who was not a formal member of KMM, but a sympathizer of the radicalist movement. He and Masuri SN, amongst others, actually wrote a lot of short stories to inform the Malay public that the Japanese occupation was a time of opportunity for them. It was a time for them to learn about the basics of governance. It was a time for them to empower themselves with ideas that could liberate themselves from colonial ideology. But again, that was as much as they could go, they could do during those days until the Japanese actually surrendered after the atomic bombs uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You referred to the conflict with the Chinese at the end of the war. Maybe we can pause to consider the relationship between radical Malays and non-ethnic Malay residing in Malaya, especially the Chinese and Indian migrants and their descendants. Was there any place at all in these radical movements for non-ethnic Malay? Could somebody be a Malay radical and a Chinese, or a Malay radical and an Indian, or were these identities incompatible? Right. So prior to the end of the Second World War, one of the limiting factors of the Malay radicalist movement is that they felt that the movement should all be should be only for the Malays and should only be concerned with Malay problems and the Malay situation. And because of this, the Chinese were left out of many of the programs that the KMM had before the war and even during the war itself. And this actually sets the stage for conflicts that took place right after the war. And 
this whole idea that the radicalist movement should only be in the service of the Malays grew out of a sense of this enchantment of these young radicals towards the what they call as the foreign races or what we call in Malay as orang-orang pendatang. They felt that the foreign races were responsible for the marginalization and social exclusion of the Malays in society. And they blamed the Chinese first for causing this, for exploiting the Malays, the Malay lands, and of course Malay businesses. They were not only against the Malays, uh, the Malay radicals were also active in propagating this idea of the DKA and the DKK, which basically translates as the Darah Keturunan Arab and the Darah Keturunan Kling which basically means people who are of Arab blood and Indian blood, they felt that the Arabs, the Indians, the Chinese, and the Europeans were responsible for the backwardness of the Malays. And because of that, they excluded all of them from the activities that they had uh, prior to the end of the Second World War. And this, to me, um, was one of the big major problems of the Malay radicalism, which they tried to address right after the war. So when the war ended, and the violence between Malays and non-Malays became a reality, the Malay radicals felt that this is not the ways in which they would want their movement to uh, progress. And people like Dr. Burhanuddin Al-Hilmi, who came into the helm of the radicalist movement after the war, felt that there was a need to make the movement much more cosmopolitan. He devised the notion of the kebangsaan Melayu, or what we can translate as Malay nationality. And to him, anyone can actually become a Malay. He doesn't have to be a Muslim. He doesn't have to have Malay parentage. He doesn't have to even be born in the Malay world. What he needs to do is to identify himself as a Malay, to respect and even practice the Malay culture. And more importantly for him, this person who is to be considered as part of the kebangsaan Melayu, must be able to speak Malay and fight for Malay rights just as he would fight for the rights of all Malayans. And this is a significant shift in thinking and modus operandi of the nationalists, of the, of the radicalist movement in the post-war period. Was that move successful? Did they succeed in integrating into the movement people from backgrounds other than ethnic Malay? Yeah, to some extent, uh, they managed to solicit a lot of support from the Indians and the Chinese. In fact, some Arabs actually uh, joined as members of the PKMM and other affiliated groups. I think when they were opening up uh, not only their ideology but also their membership, the radicalist movement actually expanded. So in one of the chapters of the book, uh, in chapter 5, I actually, uh, in chapter 4, sorry, I actually examined how that, provided the conditions of the making of an age of ferment and experimentation. From 1945 up until 1947, into 1948, before the Malayan uh, emergency was declared, the radicalist movement actually expanded so much so that they became a force to be reckoned with. The British were very much concerned with the progress of this group. Certainly, the conservative Malay elites were very, very anxious about the rapid spread of the movement, so much so that they too responded by uh, making alliances with the Chinese as well as the Indians. The cosmop cosmopolitanization of the Malay radicalist movement made the movement even more powerful than what it could be prior to the war. And I think um, that was really, to me, the heydays of the radicalist movements. Those two, two three years that made the movement before it was totally smashed by the Malayan emergency.
Can you say something more about that heyday, that age of ferment and experimentation? Your book shows very well how rapidly the movement expanded after the Second World War from hundreds of members to tens of thousands by 46 and 47. Presumably it can't only have been due to a willingness to incorporate more of different types of people into the movement. It must also have been due to good strategizing propaganda and organization. How did they manage the expanding numbers of people who became involved in the struggle against the British through the successor to the KMM, the PKMM? Well, uh, I would say that the, the model that they used in those days was the communist model. They had a cadership system where they would induct members uh, from different uh, avenues that they could use. Of course, uh, in those days, especially in the Malay society, the first people that they would attract into the movement would be their own family members, followed by, followed by friends and people uh, affiliated to all these friends that they had. How did they maintain the membership in those days? Where well, really, uh, it was quite a messy business in those days. Uh, they didn't have much resources. Really, the, the radicalist movement only had one uh, full-fledged office in the heart of Kuala Lumpur. They had other informal offices throughout the various states in the Malay, uh, in, in the Malay Peninsula. Uh, but what they did basically was to keep a simple record of the people who had joined the organization and ensured that they, these people actually attend many of the programs that they had during those days. One of the, uh, the deeper reasons why the Malay radicals expanded so much in those days was the incorporation of the women folk into the radicalist movement. So never before had the radicals prior to the end of the war imagined that women could actually join uh, the radicalist movement. And this was, again, the wisdom of Burhanuddin al-Hilmi. He came from a Minangkabau uh, society. His mother was from the Minangkabau, uh, was from a Minangkabau background. And he felt that there is no way that the radicalist movement could expand rapidly without him and the movement incorporating the women folk into the, the, the movement. And once the women actually joined uh, the movement, they too attracted men uh, into the movement itself. So it expanded rapidly, uh, really because the women became more aggressive than the men uh, in attracting as many people as possible uh, to join the group. And of course, Burhanuddin Al-Hilmi, partly because of his Islamic credentials, also reached out to the Muslim activists in the Malayan society he went to the various madrasas and spoke to many of the ulama, uh, the Muslim scholars, as well as teachers in those days, uh, explaining to them about his intentions and his movement's intentions in liberating uh, Malaya and the Muslim world in general. And they actually bought into uh, the kinds of ideologies that he was preaching in those days and joined the radicalism. So you have a confluence of so many different groups coming together in those days. The women and the Muslim activists played the biggest role, to my mind. They were the ones who attracted people on the ground. They were active uh, with the peasant society. They were doing a lot of work. Uh, basically in the villages. Many of these women were very active in societies. They founded their own organizations. One of them, by the name of Che Zahara, was probably the first woman in the history of Malaya to found a women's organization in Singapore that was addressing the problems of domestic violence. And that in itself actually attracted a lot of attention from uh, the Malay women in society. And of course, uh, men who were very concerned about the state 
of women in those days. So many different strategies, very inventive, uh, one of which is actually the use of newspapers. As you all know, in the 1940s, uh, newspapers were not actually read. They were actually heard. And many of these Malay radicals were literate. They would read these newspapers uh, in coffee shops and then induct people into their movements. They were also very active in the artistic spheres. They acted in plays, uh, what we call in Malay as bangsawan. And through their plays, they actually market the movement and try to get the youths to join them as part and parcel of the radicalist movement. In this period, we also see the emergence of the markedly non-radical UMNO, the alliance that was to become the governing coalition of independent Malaysia. What was the relationship between the PK, MM and UMNO? Right, so the relationship between UMNO and PKMM has always been a hot and cold situation. They were together once, uh, fighting against the British when it comes to the Malayan Union episode. And then they split from each other partly because of their disagreement on what ought to be the alternative to the Malayan Union. And then they came together uh, when the emergency was declared, partly because the PKMM needed UMNO uh, to help them to get many of the radicals out of prison. So you have a blowing of hot and cold partly because the, tra- the traditional elites were very suspicious of many members of the PKMM because some of them were actually involved in the communist movement. But certainly, uh, amidst all of the differences that were there between the radicals and the traditional elites, all of them felt that uh, the Malays were in a state of backwardness in comparison to the other races in Malaya then. And they all shared the same anxieties, that if they do not do anything to upgrade the situation of the Malays, they would be left behind in Malayan society. What was problematic then really was the British in the middle of this relationship between the traditional elites, UMNO, and the PKMM. In as much as people like uh, Dato On uh, would like to see the radicalist movement exist as it is without actually taking over power, he knew that he had to do something to gain the favours of the British. And this is where the traditional elites, especially Tengku Abdul Rahman, had to work together with the British uh, in some instances to crush the radicalist movement. And that was what happened actually uh, right after the, the declaration of the Malayan emergency up until the 1960s. In fact, Tengku Abdul Rahman was responsible for the arrest of Burhanuddin Al-Hilmi not because he was against Burhanuddin Al-Hilmi as a person, but he was uh, in fear of the fact that the ideologies that Burhanuddin Al-Hilmi was propagating then would eventually become the dominant ideology in the Malayan society. Again, when Burhanuddin Al-Hilmi died, he personally declared that that man is actually one of our national heroes. So it's this um, ambivalence that was there between them. What was ironical is that Amno eventually adopted the very motto that the Malay radicals were fighting for. The Malay radicals felt that they should fight for independence by any means necessary, merdeka, uh, and this slogan or motto that they had for themselves became the motto of AMNO in the 1960s, partly because AMNO felt that independence was the only way that they could eventually upgrade the situation of the Malays. And it is interesting to note that many of the Malay radicals eventually actually joined AMNO for strategic reasons, and partly because they were enchant- disenchanted by the radicalist movement. So you have 
also a movement of members in between these two groups. UMNO members would go over to the radicalist side and the radicals would also move on to the UMNO side, which is totally reflective of the current situation in Malaysia as well. People switch political parties like they are changing clothes. <laughs> Let's now talk about the emergency period. How did the British colonizers counter the radical movement and what happened to the PKMM and its affiliates once the emergency was declared? Well, uh, in Chapter 6 of the book, I looked at their struggles in prison. Uh, the British basically had just one tool against the radicalist movement, imprison them. And these this, this men and women were put into prison so many times, actually, throughout their activism. Uh, Burhanuddin Al-Hilmi actually went to prison more than three times in his life, uh, Ahmad Bustamam twice, and of course, it was a normal thing for them. And as I said, uh, I mentioned in that chapter, uh, prison was almost something that these Malay radicals actually expected from the British. And the British knew that the only way to ring fence the movement is to put them under lockup behind bars. And that was one effective tool that they used. The other thing that they used against them was actually propaganda. This whole propaganda that the Malay radicals were communists, even if they were not. And I think the communist boogeyman uh, made a difference, especially after the declaration of the Malayan emergency. Uh, this whole trope that communists are bad, communists are banned toward, uh, 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 prone towards violence, and that Malay radicals were communists uh, is something that was very powerful in the minds of the Malay. So right after the Malayan emergency, many Malays actually refused or avoided the Malay radicalist movement, partly because of this propaganda that was churned out by the British. You mentioned in the book that the experiences of imprisonment among Malay radicals have been conspicuously absent from the many accounts of their activism. That statement really caught my attention because in other British post-colonies in Southeast and South Asia, like Burma and India, we find abundant and frequently recalled stories of prison experiences and the lives in prison and, in some cases, deaths in prison of radical anti-colonial leaders. So why, by comparison, does this lacuna exist in Malaysian history and historiography? Well, I think uh, past scholars, uh, not only on radicalist movement, but on nationalist movements in general in Malaya, have avoided these whole stories of being in prison. And partly because prisons have been regarded as sites of shame, sites of criminality, and sites by which deviants are produced and reproduced. What I did in that chapter is to show that prisons actually function in a totally different way in Malaya as it is in South Africa, India, Burma, and other places in the British colonies. Uh, they were not sites of shame for these men. These men actually desired going to prisons because they saw it as universities, as place where they could learn something new, a new language, a new way of, re uh, of fighting the battles that they had outside prison, and it's also a place to regroup because they were spread out in so many different states in those days. Uh, imprisonment was the place where they could come together, discuss new strategies, and apply them when they go out of prison. So I think one of the problems that we have in Malayan historiography is that we are not sensitive to many sites that could help us understand how certain activisms becomes enhanced and how certain activisms actually take a different route. One of the other things that I wrote about, uh, which has just been, which been published uh, almost in the same year as this book, is uh, on the role of coffee shops. Actually, if you look at the radicalist movements, and I mentioned this in one of the paragraphs, 
they actually uh, discuss a lot of their plans and strategies in coffee shops. Coffee shops were sites of not only sociability, but sites by which radical activisms were talked about, discussed, and launched. And again, I think one of the poverty of Southeast Asian history, and particularly Malayan history, is that we take many of these sites as sites of uh, shame and also sites of idleness. And we need to change our lenses when we are viewing places like prison, especially. Can you tell us about the sources you used to write this book? What material did you rely on? How does it differ from the material used by conventional historians? How did you get access to it? How did you read it? Uh, I wrote this book with the ghost of Anthony Milner at the back of my mind. And Anthony Milner wrote a very powerful essay uh, entitled Colonial Archives History, where he criticized uh, past scholars of Malayan history for being utterly too dependent on sources that are kept in colonial archives. So what I did in this book was to pay more attention to the memoirs written by the Malay radicals. Um, I alternative sources such as diaries, such as letters that were written by many of these radicals that were kept in the National Archives as well, and read them as against the accounts of the British about the group. One wonderful thing, I mean, you can find a lot of wonderful stuff uh, in the colonial archives, but it was filled with pejorative and prejudiced comments about the Malay radicals. So I blend these two different sources together, not privileging one uh, uh, over another, but to actually put these memoirs especially, or the sources that came from the native informants themselves, from the historical actors on the ground, at the same level as the colonial sources that have been uh, given to us in many of these various uh, uh, places that we can find. So I think one of uh, the things that I tried to do in the book is to show that we need to pay serious attention to the voices of the Malays themselves. We need to give them the privilege of history and to bring out the small voices of history in order for us to recreate uh, the various struggles of the Malays in that kind of moment and conditions. In relation to the question of sources, one of the themes that you return to throughout the book is the role of the written word, how radicals work through newspapers, short stories, poetry and polemics. What were some of the important publications and literary works which sparked the radical imagination and that you drew upon to write the book? Who were some of the most important authors that attracted your interest? Well, the book started out with uh, the first essay that I wrote, uh, which is on Burhanuddin Al-Hilmi. And I wrote about him uh, basically discussing why colonialism actually happened in the Malay world. So he was basically the starting point. Uh, he delivered many speeches that was later published into several books. And from there, I actually moved on to people like Ibrahim Haji Yaakob, who wrote a travelogue. Uh, about his experiences looking at the conditions of the Malays in the Malay world, followed by other uh, memoirs that I was talking about just now. But another source that to me gave me the inspiration to write this book is actually the newspapers. Uh, we have newspapers such as uh, Suluk Melaya, Pelita Raya, uh, Melayu Raya and others that were published, uh, especially in the post-war period. These newspapers never lasted more than um, three to four years. But many of the news items, especially the editorials that you find them, 
tell you about the aspirations of the people then. And they give you some keys to the ways in which Malays who were in the radicalist movement thought about what they could do in that kind of circumstance that they were in. And of course, uh, novels as well as short stories. One of the great novelists within the radicalist movement was A. Samad Ismail. The other one is, of course, Ahmad Bustamam, who wrote a few novels of his own. They were never so popular in those days, but they were sources of documentation of his own experiences, being a radical in the Malay society and the different challenges that he faced during that time. So there were so many sources uh, that were somehow neglected by past historians. And this neglect partly has to do with the fact that the historians of Malaya have been, uh, in a sense, defined by the kind of tra- historical training that they have gone through, which is basically very much geared towards looking at the colonial archive. And this book is trying to give an alternative picture altogether. I hope I, am su- I have succeeded in that sense. Well, you certainly brought to my attention many important events and persons in Malaysia's radical past, uh, which I had not read previously. So I'm sure that other readers will find much in the book that they have not encountered elsewhere. One more question before we go to what you're working on now is, what is the legacy of Malay radicals for Malaysia today? Right. So one of those things that the Malay radicals uh, have left behind is this cosmopolitan culture of being able to see your fellow Malay as someone that could build Malaysia together with other communities uh, in the country. And that forms the basis of this current book that I'm writing. I'm supposed to submit it to the publisher in 28 days uh, to Edinburgh University Press. The title of the book is uh, Muslim Cosmopolitanism, Southeast Asian Islam in Comparative Perspective. What the book is trying to argue is that Muslims and non-Muslims got along pretty well, especially in the age of colonial rule. And this is a culture that was there for the longest time, uh, not only in Malayan history, but also in Southeast Asian history. The Malay radicals manifested this cosmopolitan outlook and visions. And we need to recover, reclaim, and recreate this uh, cosmopolitanism that was there to show to the people around us that Muslims and non-Muslims can get along pretty well. There is mutual tolerance uh, and also support for one another and that we can see evidences of this, not only in history, but also at present. So what I'm trying to do in the current book, uh, taking off from the Malay radicals, is to show that there are various sites of sociability where Muslims and non-Muslims get along pretty well. If you look at everyday life places such as the marketplace, People get along well. They don't talk about religious differences and other things. I look at blocks. I look at uh, different sites uh, such as uh, coffee shops and others. And, of course, the book also explores things like intellectuals and their roles in uh, explaining uh, the cosmopolitan visions in society. So that is, to me, the legacy of the Malay radicals, to be cosmopolitan, to be a Muslim cosmopolitan, to be a Malay Muslim cosmopolitan uh, who can actually embrace people in society. Kairudin Al-Junaid, it sounds like we're going to have to get you back very soon to continue this conversation on cosmopolitanism. In the meantime, thank you for taking the time to join us today to talk about radicals, resistance and protest in colonial Malaya, even as you're working furiously to complete a new publication. Thank you so much for having me in the program.
and thanks to everyone for listening. I look forward to having you join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian Studies. And if you like what the network is doing, please consider Marshall's invitation to make a small donation to cover its expenses or follow the Amazon link from the website to purchase a copy of Radicals or any of the other books featured on the channel. Hey, thank God she gets a chance to vote.